welcome to another evening. I'm Danny. You can find me on Instagram as Blotted Ink Books or over on TikTok as a Novel Evening Podcast. And this week I am joined by Jane Johnson, who is going to chat with me all about her new novel, The Black Crescent. Um, this is actually my current read. I will finish it by the time this comes out, but I am loving it. It is such an intriguing story. It's got murder. It's got magic. It has got division throughout Morocco. Um, and I love a story that's steeped with a little bit of magic. That's what I'm here for. Um, it's such a cool, interesting story. And I'm telling you, now, I have so many questions for where the inspiration for this novel came from. I cannot wait to chat to Jane all about it and find out more about her novel evening. A massive hello to Jane. Hello. Hello, Danny. How brilliant to meet you. Oh, and you. And I understand you are you are currently recording from Cornwall. I am. This is where um, I live and work. So I'm, I've been I'm in Devon, so we're neighbours. Oh, are you? Where are you? I'll, I'll ask you that later rather than you give it away. No, to I am in Torbay, so I'm in Paynton in Torbay. So no way. I lived in, in Paynton for the first year of my life. There you go. It's a small world. It's a good place. It is. It is. And I do, you know, we are both very lucky. I think we live in some of the most beautiful parts of the country as well. Yeah, gorgeous. I think it's just really good for you being by the sea. Yeah. And I try and get in it as much. I'm a bit of a wimp, but I do try to get in it as much as I can. I look at it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen your Instagram and you are obviously very, very much an outdoors person. You seem to go oh, on I many am. adventures. Yeah, no, I'm, I am very, I'm much happier outdoors than indoors. I think it's um, that feeling of space and not being trapped. There's nothing I hate more than uh, than feeling trapped somewhere. You know, I like to be outside. I like to have a feeling of freedom. Yeah. And when you're writing, do you tend to write inside or outside? What do you find your kind of works best for you? I write outdoors in longhand in a notebook because I'm a really crap typist. Oh, no way. I, I don't think I've spoken to many people who still write longhand, especially novels. I no, I know. Uh, and, you know, they're not short novels either, most of them. No, I was, I'm just literally looking at your book now thinking, hmm. <laughs> this, is a, this is a cramped wrist right here. I carry a notebook with me at all times. I always have a notebook and I'm taking notes whenever, wherever I go. Um, and... I, I write everything uh, in first draft longhand and then I come back every time I've got a new chapter I will then type it up that's painful because as I say my typing is really terrible and that's why I don't I don't sit and, and create at a, at a screen because if I did I'd spend most of my time correcting my, my spelling errors and my and, and my typos which are just abysmal so and it just gets in the way, you know, that sort of mechanical thing gets in the way of thinking about it. Yeah. So, yeah, what I do is just take off wherever I can. At the moment, I go up to my allotment and, and sit around the corner where people can't hear me, where I can hear them and take down notes from what they're saying. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> now they know, though. That's the problem. <laughs> yes, I know. I'll be listening. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just lock that out. Now look, the Black Crescent is coming out this August. Firstly, congratulations. Thank and how you. does it feel when you know a novel is, you know, imminent? Um, you know, this is my 17th novel and I'm still really nervous about it. It's oh. so bizarre. Everybody thinks, oh my God, you must be so inured to the process. And being 
you know, this is now coming up to nearly 40 years as a publisher as well. You know, so the whole book process, I, sh I should be really blasé about the whole thing. But I get very excited about my author's books coming out and I get very nervous about my books coming out because, you know, that it's a very personal process laying yourself bare on the page. Um, and also every book I write is different. So people never know quite what they're going to get. You know, my last novel, The White Hair, was a bit of Cornish Gothic. It was, you know, <laughs> a bit of a horror story set in a, in a, a remote Cornish valley, whereas you couldn't get much further away than a sort of a political thriller set in 1950s Morocco. So. I was going to say, very different, different settings very here. <laughs> Although, you know, my themes are always the same. It's always outsiders um, stuck in a moral dilemma um, mm. and people with, uh, you know, who have a, a feel for the landscape they're in and they're interested in the people that they meet. And there's always a bit of the supernatural thrown in there somewhere. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that in this story. And for anyone listening who hasn't sort of heard of the Black Crescent, isn't familiar with the story, tell us about this story. Give us the brief lowdown well, on what the story is. Yeah, you see, in 2005, I ended up living in Morocco. I hadn't planned on doing this at all. I, oh. went, to re I went to research my first historical novel, The Tenth Gift, which is about some um, of the Barbary pirate raid on, on Penzance, where 60 men, women and children were taken by... Um, North African corsairs and sold into the white slave trade in Morocco, which, you know, is a piece of history that none of us are ever taught about in school. I was going to say, I'm local to being brought up in Yeah, no so, idea. So I, I was so shocked by that. I thought I have to research it. So I went off to Morocco to find out what I could and, uh, and ended up by a very uh, circuitous route in this little tiny village, which is basically Tizian in the Black Crescent, in the foothills of the Anti-Atlas Mountains, gorgeous place, beautiful landscape, good climbing, because I'm a climber. And the only person who could come with me on that trip was my rock climbing partner, Bruce. So, <laughs> so it was just a real bit of a weird serendipity that landed us in this tiny little place. And that was where I met my husband, Abdul Latif, Abdul. And, wow. you know, it was just a bizarre situation. Anyway, um, you know, if I hadn't met Abdul, my writing life would be completely different and my, my entire life would be completely different. You know, I would not have been writing historical novels set in Morocco and, and you know, in other exotic places. It's just so weird how life can turn on you like that. And uh, and this one in particular is a very personal novel in that we talked about it between ourselves, Abdul and I. I came across this black and white photo on online when I was just sort of, you know, I often just sort of dip into you know, Morocco, Moroccan history and images. And it's very fascinating because, I, you know, I knew very little about Morocco before I went there. And I'm yeah. still learning so much all the time. And I found this fantastic black and white image of this beautiful, beautiful, very young woman um, standing in front of obviously Moroccan architecture, sort of arches. And she was wearing a headscarf and a shift dress. Mm. But this shift dress had a really low cut to it. And I thought, 
bad is a very arresting image because this is a very modest Muslim country. Women yes. do not show themselves. And so I had to find out about, about this, uh, this image. And by digging and doing a bit of, um, you know, reverse image search and stuff like that, I found that uh, she was a prostitute in what they called the Buzbir, which was um, a, a brothel in Casablanca. And this set me off, you know, it's just, what? <laughs> Nobody yeah. talks about anything like this in relation to, to Morocco. Um, and then I went, I knew about obviously that it had been um, a French protectorate, which is just a fancy name for colony. Yes. <laughs> they try to make it sound better than it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's a history what, of that, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly is. And it's all, you know, it's so topical. The whole thing just feels so, so fresh and topical even now. And I found that um, the French administration had built what was basically a Moroccan Disneyland in the middle of, of Casablanca, which was just this sort of fantasy park for their bureaucrats and military, you know, so that they could just go into this walled area, which was just like fantasy Morocco with restaurants and food and women to screw. Oh. And the prostitutes in that place, they just lived there all the time. They, they weren't allowed outside. Yeah. So it was, you know, it's kind of like a fancy prison camp. And yes, this just yeah. fascinated me. I just thought, you know, nobody, I've never heard anything about this in my life. No. It, it, you know, this is, this is incredible and horrifying and shocking. And I felt really outraged for this beautiful young woman whose life was obviously so curtailed. And, and this was her life now inside this, this basic sex prison camp that I thought I have to find out about this. And so I started to talk to Abdul about it. He'd worked in Casablanca for 10 years, so he knew the city really well. He knew right, yes. quite a lot of the history as well. So brilliantly, he was able to go off down all sorts of, of rabbit holes in languages I can't speak, like Arabic. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and so um, he dug up really amazing information about, you know, about the French protectorate, about, um, you know, their, how they had created Casablanca, because basically there was nothing much there beforehand. They just raised this gleaming white modern city if you go there, it's it's like Marseille. It's like nothing wow. in Morocco. It does, there is there is very little Moroccan feel to it even now. You have to really search out the authentic Moroccan culture there. It is quite a, an extraordinary thing. And you know, for the French at the time, it, it was just like carte blanche. Literally, they were able to go in and create like a sort of mini Paris with these wide boulevards and avenues and apartment buildings. It's all Art Deco. The, the architecture is gorgeous. Yeah. You know, it's very beautiful to walk around. But then you start to think about the symbolism of all this mm. and how what that means for the local people and the people who come to work for the French in that city. And basically, they all end up living in shanty towns around the edges in dire poverty. And you put, you know, that sort of ostentatious wealth alongside that sort of poverty um, and an oppressed people, and you're going to have some fireworks in the end. And mm. this is this is the Black Crescent. 
Black Crescent is actually the name of one of the nationalist groups that rises up, and they're one of the most fearsome and extreme of those groups. And Hamu, who is my central character, who is a sweetheart, who has come from the foothills of the mountains, you know, he's a Berber, he's a rural boy, but by various circumstances, he's ended up in Casablanca having to learn to be a French policeman. And it is not really what he ever had in mind when he was being a naughty boy in charge of a gang of other kids, you know, going around raiding the orchards and, and getting into trouble. But, um, be, you know, he needs to send money home to his family. So he, there he is and he's doing well, he's clever and he's committed and he wants to do good in the world. But, you know, at some point when you are stuck in the middle of that situation with the French cracking down on the local population um, and, you know, you are expected to be on the front line of that crackdown, what is the point at which you say no? Yes. And that, that, was, that was sort of my starting point for Hamu as a character. But then he also meets this beautiful young woman like the one in, in, in the photograph. And there's a there's a sort of a plot that rambles through the book, and you you'll come to the end of it and go, what was all that about? And then you'll go, oh my god, that's the idea. I always like to have a little trick up my sleeve at the end of, of every book, um, where you you're thinking, well, I wonder what happened with all that, and then suddenly you know you find out. So I won't spoil the ending, but um, I love I love structuring stories where I know what's going to happen and I love to keep you know I like to lay the, the seeds down all the clues are there so you can go back and find them like a breadcrumb trail yeah <laughs> but um but yeah at the end you should go oh my god <laughs> oh, I'm excited now I'm excited so I'm reading it at the moment so that's got me I'm looking forward to it now <laughs> you've done the carrot I think the thing that I found really interesting now that you were saying, you know, the French came into Morocco and they basically built, like you said, a, a mini Paris. And yet, you know, they, they bought France to Morocco and yet they felt the need to build this mini Morocco inside of this French city that they built. I think that's so intriguing. And this isn't set that long ago, really, when no, you think about it. This is quite modern history, you know, the 1950s. It is, yeah. Yes, and it's, it's very right. intriguing why you would what it is about colonization that because quite often that happens you know we'll go in and we'll take somewhere or the french will take somewhere and we always feel the need to build like a mini version of what's been destroyed it's like fantasy land isn't it, it this is our fantasy of what morocco is you know it's orientalist it's you know it's nubile women who are willing to please you know darker skinned women who are there for you and you know it's it's taking the exploitation and sugarcoating it yes and 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 you know and to say and look at this beautiful exotic country which we have sort of crammed into this little space with all you know we've planted all these palm trees everywhere and we've made moroccan arches and it all looks beautiful but actually it's really sordid <laughs> yes yeah and you know as you say as well you know the the actual local people are living in shantytowns they're kind of out of the way where you can't see them it's distasteful to actually see yeah. The real and they're still there. You know, the thing about the Bidonvilles is they're still there in, in Casablanca. The first time I came into Casablanca, I, ca I came into the airport, took a, a grand taxi from the airport, and because he was dodging the toll on the main road, <laughs> he just, he just yeah. cut off sideways. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> I was ready to hurl myself into <laughs> the door. 
Um, and we cut through this incredible slum and it was just huge. It was huge and it was tiny, tiny little shacks made out of old oil cans, all sort of hammered together to make these little cubes of, of, of living space. Um, and I just, I've never seen poverty like it ever in my life. Um, I imagine, you know, the favelas in, in Brazil would be quite similar. Yes. Um, and yet, you know, it didn't feel despairing and it didn't feel miserable. There were kids out playing football as there are everywhere in Morocco. Yeah. You know, there were women gathered in groups having a good old gossip and, you know, and children running everywhere and playing. And so it didn't it didn't feel awful. But I tell you, it was a hell of an eye opener because that was my first view of Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> before I got into the shining white city with all its you know smart shops and nice restaurants and things <laughs> you almost saw the true side before yeah. you saw the facade that's presented absolutely and it made a big in impact on me at the time I was I was going okay this isn't I, nobody's talked about this bit <laughs> yeah. and I think that shows in the book I think you very it, it captures it really well the kind of two halves of Casablanca yeah. I think you can really feel the divide that's there. And, you know, for Hammy, you've got, he's got kind of his position in the police is kind of very upstanding. You know, people are respectful to him, but he's also got this side of him that remembers where he came from. Yeah. And that divide, and I think the divided loyalties you've got in the book are not just between France and Morocco, but also between Hammy's two parts, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we all know that, you know, some some people, you know, when joining any authoritarian regime actually become worse than yes. the occupiers themselves. So, yeah. you know, you always have a choice. I think what I'm saying is that you always have a choice. There's always a moral choice to be taken. You know, you can take one road or you can take another. And it's yeah. never it's not always easy to choose the right way to go, but you don't have to take the bad path. <laughs> you know um so yeah no I, I wanted to give him a test he he gets he he has to he has to have a big he you know he's my hero he's got to he's on a quest exactly he the has, hero's journey <laughs> it, it is the hero's journey and he has to go through hard times before he can come out the other end and you know he will come out the other end it's yeah. not all grim <laughs> and you do tackle some quite difficult themes in the book you know the yeah. events that are happening are are very are very difficult to read at times for you how did that responsibility feel when you knew you were going to be writing yeah. about these things yeah no it really does because you know um you know one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist mm -hmm. and hamu takes a very clear position on on this matter in that he does not believe that it is ever justified to to hurt or kill civilians. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of with Hamu on, on this one. However, I know that if I were in that situation and I were feeling as oppressed and, and uh, you know, and in fear for my life as those people were, I would be up in arms. Yeah. <laughs> and if you gave me rocks to throw or even a gun, which was, you know, a rare thing to get hold of, I'd use it in those circumstances. So I, I have real sympathy for people who are oppressed and, and feel that they have no way of express, expressing themselves or, or escaping from under the boot. And, you know, I always say to people who, who talk about, you know, oh, it's so wrong to, to you know, armed struggle. You think, well, just imagine if Nazis had actually 
colonized Britain. Would you have just collaborated and been, you know, a good little quizzling? Or would you have joined the resistance? Because, you know, like the French were hailing their resistance fighters, but at the same time they're calling the Moroccan nationalist terrorists. Yeah. (laughs) It's a a complex situation. Um, And it, you know, it doesn't, it's not an easy thing to write about because... Mm. You know, you have to, you really do have to think about it in in terms of your own moral system. Yes. But you can't shy away from it either. You know, it it happened. It was horrific. In the end, it won, which Mm. is very surprising because these things don't always win but you know I mean the French had the revolution so they <laughs> they knew that they, <laughs> that, that it you know it, it does work sometimes um, but at the same time you know there are ways and ways of doing things and I do show I do want to show the diplomatic side of it as well so there is there are attempts at diplomacy and there are attempts to you know to to bring world opinion over onto their side but in the end I'm afraid it was direct action Um, and women on the streets and you know a whole mass of people joining together really courageous in the with no weapons you know in in the face of a a much greater asymmetric power which had weapons and I was not afraid to use them and the stories that had come over the border from Algeria where it was far worse uh, far more brutal um must have been quite terrifying actually absolutely but but yeah no I'd never shy away from these things you know I've written war novels before now so you've got (laughs) I think you've got to show the truth of it haven't you no I absolutely do and and uh Otherwise, you know, if you don't if you don't show the brutality, you don't get the payoff when things are better. Yes. You know, yeah. you don't get the relief and and the oh my god, thank God it's sorted out. And yeah. you know, now and you know, now your character is is able to blossom. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you obviously mentioned you touched upon the fact your books can have the supernatural element to them. And we do in this, we do have kind of the magics and superstitions of the country. How much did you decide? Did you know how much you were going to include of that? Did you know how you were going to include it when you started the novel? Um, I always have a bit of magic in in my books. I I just love that. Um, and this this whole this whole legend about Missouri, there is there is it's a really um, it's a really powerful legend in Morocco, which still goes strong, which is that. Uh, there are people born with a completely horizontal line across their palms, just a single line where we have three normally. Yes. They just look, have I'm looking straight away, I'm looking at my hand. Because yeah. <laughs> honestly, my husband has this. Wow. <laughs> I was fascinated. Um, because I look at my palm and go, well, that's, you know, messy and you know, who knows what that means. But, you know, he's got this single, really strong horizontal line. And the legend is that anybody born with a line like that is actually a changeling child who has been, you know, has got part, uh, probably a father of the jinn, the genie, yeah, yeah, yeah. human mother, and uh, and they will have taken the human baby. (laughs) Goodness. Um, And the idea is that that person, therefore, has a certain amount of power within them to uh, divine treasure, treasure, because the jinn like to collect and hide treasure. 
And, and so if you are of the jinn, then you have a better chance of finding it than anyone else. And so, you know, even recently, there was, uh, I remember, there was a, a newspaper story even in the early 2000s of, uh, I'm, I'm afraid, a small Moroccan Zuri child being taken and killed for its blood. Oh, goodness. Because people thought that the blood would give them entrance into the into the world of the jinns and to find and find treasure. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary that this persists today. But yeah. you know, um, it's very hard to squash folklore. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know, passed down through generations. Um, so, so I wanted to give Hamu this this gift, but he doesn't want it. <laughs> no, <laughs> quite understandably, I think. Just sort of, just sort of ignoring it and denying it, and you know, um, but you know, the very first chapter, he, he finds not treasure but a body, <laughs> and and it's it's the finding of that body and, and what happens next, which is basically that that it's a crime that is shuffled away as being something um, inconvenient and probably politically uh, embarrassing. And he never got over the fact that nobody ever really investigated that crime. And it's what drove him to become a policeman. Um, and that, that story will come back later in, in the book. <laughs> ah, I do love a twisty tale. I love when there's something at the start that seems almost, you say, almost insignificant or a very small event. And it comes back towards the end. And did you always know how this story yeah. was going to end? Yeah, I always, with every book I write, I always have an ending. I always know where it's going to end. I have no idea how it's going to get there. And actually finding my way is sometimes an absolute nightmare. And I tie myself up in knots. And you know, you know, you think by 17 books in, you should be quite good as a novelist, but it doesn't really work like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing that it's just really, um, it's a very unconscious sort of skill. And um, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but I mean, this one particularly came from me and Abdul sitting down and talking about it. And every time, I wrote a section, I would read it to him and, and we would discuss it and that would throw up more ideas. And then I would write faster because I knew he would be waiting for the next bit. And it was just a brilliant process because I've never written like that before. It was because it's such a, a lone wolf type thing to do writing normally. It's, um, all, it's usually quite an isolating process as well. The ideas are in your head. You have to get them yeah, out. Absolutely. So, so that it was a hugely fun book to write, and it took only eleven and a half months, which for me is an incredibly short time because, obviously, as as you know, a fiction publishing director as well, I only write at weekends. So, wow. most of it, I'm editing other people's texts. Yeah. You know, I was saying last week I had worked out last week that I in in the six weeks running up to last week I had edited two thousand pages of text, which was painfully hard going i mean it was not not because the stories weren't great they were fabulous books but they had to be done fast and they were big long fantasy novels oh goodness um, yeah with with big worlds that i knew but characters that had to be consistent and all the rest of it and you have to hold it in your head and do it all in one go so oh so but it's quite hard sometimes to detach yourself from that and then find space to write your own stuff and when you're writing your stuff, are you perhaps, do you consider more the editing process? Do you find you're kind of more monitoring your own writing because you're aware of that process a bit more? 
or are you more sort of like I'm going to get this on the page and oh, yeah. I'll deal with that yeah no I think I think what happens is that I am less fussed about getting it down because I know I can fix it yeah <laughs> so that's the whole point about writing longhand and being able to get it down on the page yeah because then you can you can take your time you can when you when I type in it's like a second edit yep. and I can hope and cut it and move things around and you know I I self-edit quite a lot but uh usually I'll get to the end of the first draft and, and I'll have a list of things that I need to think about yeah and sometimes that list gets really long sometimes those things are really big oh no I'm <laughs> dreading oh no I've got to somehow find a way of, of sorting out that subplot because it's not not in the right place at the moment it needs to be fixed and, and this needs to be done and I've this character needs I need to thread them back through the story and all this sort of thing but actually I quite like that process you know it's um it's it's all the stuff under the hood you know I've, yeah. I've got oh hello sorry oh look no, no <laughs> just remove my cat from the I love cats she's, she's a nightmare oh, this is my cat Suki who decides she wants to get involved as soon as there's a laptop on my lap she's quite put out that she's not joining me <laughs> I love cats there's always a cat in my book <laughs> she's very loud as well so, so I'm trying to keep her away from the microphone because <laughs> you'll hear her and you said this is a very, you know, it's a personal book. It's obviously been a very different process. What comes next for you? How do you, you know, what, what do you, what will you do next? What, in terms of writing? The yeah. Next book? I've started. Oh, next, okay. Next one's back in Cornwall. <laughs> yeah. um, and does it feel um, very different now? Because you have this different process sharing it with your husband. Is it kind of feel different to now go back to kind of writing yourself? That's a really good question. Yes, it does. And I'm kind of missing... I'm missing the collaborative, but we're, we're talking about it, but it's not the same as having apples there as my advisor about the language, about, you know, the geography, because, you know, can you imagine, here's the difficulty, Casablanca in 1954, under French rule, everything was French named, all the streets, all yeah. the, you know, had a French name. Nationalism comes along, 1955, everything changes and gets Arab. <laughs> advised that all the names of all the streets changed i had to track down an a to z of casablanca 1954 i cannot tell you how long it took me to find one it came from texas in the end on ebay (laughs) Um, and then you know i had to lay that out so i had this 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 great big map out and i um i had a there was a, a map on online as well from 1955-56. So I was able to, you know, before building works changed everything, actually still have the correct layout for the city at that time with the right, you know, checking one against the other, actually able to check this and then say to Abdul, is this right? You know, here's here's where the police station is and here's Hamu's apartment and this is his route to work (laughs) and he goes through this park and he sees this and and Abdul would say yes and you know there's General Leote up on his horse and just off to the side there there's the theatre and and it you know so all that is brilliant but I'm having to I I have to do all that myself at Ezra's Cottage because it's where I live so (laughs) 
<laughs> so isn't it wonderful the internet that you can access those things incredible. trying to track down that information impossible. even if you're writing it 20 years ago impossible i mean imagine it would be impossible you just have to make it up and think well i mean the thing is that nobody's going to know <laughs> no not unless i mean unless you've got a real tv that's on google maps you know yeah but i know but yeah. even on google maps you're not going to have the french names for no. things so that's gone you know that's that's been and gone and most people who lived at that time have gone now as well so you know but i know and it has to i have to feel that it's it's authentic and right and that i've done my job <laughs> i love that and i love you had your advisor to make sure that happened so keep me on track <laughs> absolutely honestly i'm loving the book i think it's going to do fantastically it's such oh, an intriguing oh. story and i knew nothing about shamefully nothing at all about morocco um i don't think i could have told you a single thing and it's such a fascinating time period as well yeah no it's just just post-war so everything's up in the air you know i like yeah. that i mean last novel white hair was also was set in the same time period yeah I the world know. was so different and everywhere was different weren't they every but area was, was so different possibility there were endless possibilities i think at that point and I, we don't really feel that anymore, do we? <laughs> At the moment, no, but you never know. <laughs> we might have a turn of the tide, much like they did. I hope so, yeah, but maybe not in the same way, maybe. <laughs> perhaps not, perhaps not. I'm waiting for like the robot uprising or something along those lines, the AI uprising, yeah. and then maybe we'll see. <laughs> you so might I get have... to write, you know, a time period of that. It will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're in the sticks. We're fine. Yes, I know. We've got fish. We've got vegetables. It'll be all right. We've got we fish. I don't know we what's can, here. We can forage hedges. <laughs> <laughs> but look, you obviously read a wide variety of books in your job. You're obviously inspired by lots of different places. So your novel evening, there's no pressure, but I have fairly high hopes for <laughs> an interesting one. I think you've got a lot to draw on here. Yeah, no, well, I, I do think I, we have to go to Morocco. We absolutely have to. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to commandeer sort of a number of magic carpets so that everybody can get there really easily. That's a fantastic yeah. idea. Whereabouts in Morocco would you have us go? So we're off to Tizian. Oh, beautiful. Um, we're off to the plateau um, and the mountains, sort of not, not mountains, but they're sort of granite hills outside Tizian. And I'm telling you why we're going there, because on my first trip back after meeting Abdul for the first time, I I went back trepidatiously on my own. It oh, felt wow. scary. Um, and I stayed in his family house. And honestly, they treated me like, like a queen. It was incredible. Oh, my goodness. And he was running a restaurant. So, you know, I was left alone for much of the day. And, and then, you know... And then he said, just be ready at about 10 o'clock. I went, okay, ready for what? <laughs> and he said, well, just, just you know, uh, be dressed for the outdoors. And we'll come and get you at 10 o'clock. And so off I went. And so I'm going to recreate that evening for, uh, I would like to invite a whole load of people for this because I think it would be huge fun. So oh, huge, a, a huge carpet spread out on the top of this of this mountain plateau, with Moroccan candle lanterns dotted around, under canopy of stars, proper darkness, warm, you know, a warm evening 
so not not chilly musicians playing moroccan music my husband and his brothers cooking for us because they are incredible chefs oh goodness i can see why you married him i'm understanding because <laughs> you're telling this you now have me at food oh there it is oh well i love i love food <laughs> there's always there's always lots of foodie type things in my novels as well especially yes. the moroccan I've noticed that as I'm reading. It's uh, not like you're hungry. Don't read it. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll we'll eat Moroccan. We'll have um, a nice spicy lentil soup starter with uh, flatbreads cooked there and then on the, over a campfire. Um, and we will have, then there will be, you know, lamb roasted over a fire. And there will be vegetable tagines and couscous and beautiful spices and preserved lemons and olives and and all all a riot of tastes, but with immense amounts of choice so that everybody is catered for and everybody can find something that they can they can really enjoy. Um, and oh. and with the musicians sitting cross-legged and, and playing their traditional instruments. In fact, I think I might bring Tanarawen in to play in the background for us. Oh, that cool. would be quite handy. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that, that's my idea because this is what they did for me. They took me up into the mountains and, and gave me a midnight feast, basically. And it was amazing. I'm. This is very smooth. I am very... I know. <laughs> I know, beat that for a second date. I was going to say, some gentlemen and ladies need to listen to this and learn a thing or two because that is <laughs> that is the ultimate second date. Honestly, I, I just I just kept thinking, this can't be real, this can't be real. This is just extraordinary. How can I be here doing this? <laughs> he was serious as well. That was not messing around. That was serious, you know. know. <laughs> it was absolutely magical. It was, oh, goodness. It was... well, I can picture this so clearly as well how you've described it and it sounds wonderful so this is top work for the setting already yeah a campfire of course yeah because <laughs> it might get chilly as the night draws in yeah, there's a little chill so so that you can tell stories around them exactly so exactly. there'll be plenty of that as well oh okay um, okay so, so who's the first magic carpet to land oh yeah no who shall i invite first of all um well, obviously, my husband and his brothers are already there. Um, and then I am going to bring in my climbing teams from, from way back when, because honestly, they are the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And um, you just end up falling around laughing with your belly hurting. So they, That's what they night's are, all about. That's what you need. They you are know. just brilliant fun. <laughs> um, and then I'm going to bring over a certain number of my authors, because yep. they're a really good company <laughs> and they can tell stories to us all. Perfect. We have storytelling competitions around the fire. That would be good. <laughs> oh, I like that. You've got everything mapped out here. I'm very impressed. Um, and then um, by some magic or other, I'm going to bring in uh, a large number of the cast from the Lord of the Rings movies that I worked on back in 2000. <laughs> And I'm I'm going to I'm just going to bring them in in costume as they were back then on their magic carpet and just bring them in because we had such a laugh. I can't. I'm tell sorry. You. I think I've just lost my mind a bit. You worked on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> At that time, I was the Tolkien publisher. 
And I had commissioned oh. Alan Lee and John Howe to illustrate the books and the calendars yeah. and Alan Lee in particular to do the illustrated Lord of the Rings. And it was that book that Peter Jackson had used as the basis for the look of his of his movie. So he rang me up one day and said, would you like to come and see what we've done to your book? <laughs> and, you know, at that point, none of us had any any good expectation for these movies <laughs> at all. <laughs> you know, I remember I, the animated <laughs> ones as well. Oh, so do I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were terrible. Um, and of course, I'd seen some of Peter's movies, and you know they were horror splatfests, largely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember watching some of this because I will say that I'm a huge. I'm sat here with my Lord of the Rings tattoos, oh, my bag end. I've got oh, my look, little my little leaf as well, my little brooch. I'm such a huge. Uh, oh my god, you films. are kidding! I read that book when I was eleven, and I. I had that, I had the Pauline Baines single volume from the school library and I loved it so much, I didn't take it back. I have a beautiful, very old copy and it belonged to an old school friend of mine. Um, and she kind of, oh, she was like, oh, it's rubbish. I got given it and I stole it from that friend and still have it now. So we both have stolen copies. Oh, <laughs> The Confessions of Tolkien Thieves. Oh, and you know what? I, I love the book, but there was something about the film. And I think I saw the films first and they were really what catapulted Did me to you? read it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I don't think I've talked to anybody who's who read who hadn't read the book before no. they saw it. So, so I would no, have been I'm 11. Confused. I'm sorry. I'd have been 11 when the first film came out. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I remember I, I don't even know how I was able to watch it because my parents certainly wouldn't have felt it was age appropriate but I did and I loved it so much and that's when I then stole the copy and read it um, and I love it I love yeah. everything those films are just and you can feel the love in the films I think Honestly, you feel the I love for the book it was the most extraordinary experience to be there I was there with Alan Lee before they started filming at the Golden Hall with, and we walked around that incredible, incredible set with all the Anglo-Saxon carving and, you know, and he was saying to people, let's have a little bit more moss on this step here. And I was just amazing. I went fishing with Aragorn and the Hobbits. <laughs> I was really admiring you now. I think I'm just sick with jealousy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it, 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 it's ridiculous. I mean, Tolkien has, has actually shaped my life because I went to university and I I studied English, but with Anglo-Saxon as my sort wow. of specialty. And then I went and did a master's degree in Old Norse because of Tolkien. <laughs> so I, I had to ask. myself completely unemployable. I suddenly found myself working at Alan and Unwin. Oh, you know, that's... And up within six months of the Tolkien editor <laughs> because I loved I it have so to ask, do you what do you think Tolkien would have felt of the adaptations of his work do you I, think I, they were faithful I think he would have been very excited by it actually especially if we'd been able to transport him to New Zealand and taken him around the locations I think he would have actually loved it talking to every single person on that set who had read the books knew the details to the nth degree you know, as soon as I set foot on, on that production, I was engulfed by people going, man, look, this sword here, this sword has been forged 
by the dwarves for the elves, but what sort of runic system do you think they will have on the decoration? And it was just brilliant because I thought I found my tribe. <laughs> oh my goodness, you found it your was, people. You, I, this is where I was meant to be. I absolutely had. And honestly, it was like being in Middle Earth because everybody was so committed. And, and so they just believed in what they were doing. And you can tell, you can tell by the, from the movies that they really did. And everybody was so immersed in, in the story and in their characters and, and, you know, talking about every tiny detail about it. And, you know, to the, to the extent that the designers on Theoden's breastplate, you know, King Theoden. Yeah, with the horses, yeah. Inside of his breastplate, it had that amazing symbol just for him, just for Bernard to see, just to know that he has got the Rohirrim symbol on the inside of the breastplate. It's amazing. I'm a film student at the moment. That's I've gone oh, back to university at 32. I've had my children. I've gone back to wow. uni. And if anyone says what if you could go back and work in film, that that would be the one. If I could have gone Obviously, back, you'd have had a complete laugh. But, and so, you know what, if you're inviting us to this novel evening, you've already so you've won. You've so, won the novel evening. <laughs> so you're on. You're on. The, you're on the magic carpet, and they're on the magic carpet. And we're all going to be having a good old chat about all this stuff because it is just brilliant. I, I'm going to be honest with you. If I was on that magic carpet, I would probably cry. So I'm probably going to do. <laughs> I'm probably embarrass myself highly first and foremost. Oh no! The poor climbing team would think, "Who's this nutter that she's brought in? Who's just sobbing in the corner?" No, they're all nutters. It's great. <laughs> I love this, and this sounds fun. This sounds yeah, a no, lot of fun. Stories, fun. Fun. There's stories. Stories. There's food. There's drink. You know. It should be a laugh. Oh my goodness. And I always ask at this point, if there's anybody that you don't want to be there. Yeah, that's that's quite a difficult one, actually. Um, mm. I, I don't have antip antipathies to particular people, except politically, and we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person. <laughs> <laughs> but all I'm going to say is I'm not going to have anybody there who wouldn't fit in. You That's know, nice. all the people who are coming to this will be inclusive and warm and funny and generous and giving and, you know, they will all know how to enjoy themselves and not make anybody else feel uncomfortable. And do you know what? That's all a party needs. If you're there to have a good time yeah, absolutely. and all of those things, you're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. This is a this is a fantastic. You've won because now you've told me all this information. Anyway, you've won. You're now the number one novel evening that we've had. You had me at Moroccan food. You had me with your husband cooking. You had me at storytelling around a fire, and then you just clinched it with the Lord of the Rings cast crew. I have no word. There's no marks. That, there's nothing more to say. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just I had my life just became bizarre after the year two thousand, basically. So. <laughs> Yes, but what and I think that's again, you know, it was very fortuitous that you went to Morocco, you met your husband, you worked on this book, and again, Tolkien was your your life when you were younger, and you end up doing that. It seems like there's a lot of coincidences in your no, life. You make shapes. I think I think life makes shapes, especially if you open the doors at the right times and yeah. and you listen, you listen out for those those doors opening. 
I, th I think you can make a certain amount of your luck in, in this term. And also, you know, follow your heart has always been my motto. And I think it's really important because, you know, we're not here for very long. So you might as well enjoy what you're doing. And I love the idea that you've gone back to film school. That, that is brilliant. Thank you. you. Know. I mean, that's what we should all be doing. I always say that education is so wasted on us at 18. What is the point? We don't know anything. You know, it's yeah. so much better to go out into the world and do some stuff and then go back and, and learn things because, you know, you bring something to it at that point and you bring perspective and understanding and you, you get so much more out of it. It would be brilliant. I, that's what I'd do if I changed the world. I would, uh, <laughs> I would make everybody go out and do other things for, for you know, ten years, and then you oh. can come and do some actual education. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think it's very interesting. We're a mixed, we're a mixed group, so we have from eighteen right up to forty nine on our yeah. film course, and it is very interesting to see the very different attitudes that we all have. And I'm not saying the eighteen year olds don't want to be there; they do, but for the older ones of us we know we're there because this is our chance. We, you know, we don't have a lot of chances necessarily left to do this. So we're going to go and do it. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll absolutely. See. It's passion as opposed to, well, I feel I ought to go and do this. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this, honestly, this has been such a lovely discussion, novel evening. Um, I'm very impressed <laughs> by you, by your book. And before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening, I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. Um, I'm finishing off Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which I've gone back to. I've read it. I have, I have to admit to having the most atrocious memory, which is really handy for rereading books, though. So, yeah. you know, I've read it. I read it, you know, like 20 years ago or, or whenever, 17 years ago, whatever. And... And having read Demon Copperhead recently, I thought, you know, I'm, I loved, I remember I loved the Poisonwood Bible, but I can't remember what happened in it. <laughs> Very so handy. I'm, I'm in the depths of the Congo at the moment. But then after that, it's, um, I shall be into uh, Sunbringer, Hamakena. Oh. She's about to um, deliver her, her re revision. Oh my goodness. So I, I, I interviewed Hannah. I obviously had Hannah oh. on. Yeah. Uh, adored god killer um, it's, a it's fantastic book. it is a fabulous book and a fabulous premise and i love the characters yeah oh so, yeah. absolutely same and do you know what it packed so much because for a fantasy it's quite a small fantasy yeah. and it packs exactly. a lot it does no and i love writers who can do that i like a writer who can write really tight mm. you know mark lawrence is another one but i i love the way that he writes he can pack so much stuff into a short space it's just brilliant so yeah that's so that's my current read and my next read oh well that and that's an exciting treat to hear that that's yeah. on its way to you so that's very yeah. exciting <laughs> and honestly thank you so much again i've had the most wonderful evening chatting with you uh, the black crescent i will be finishing it imminently and um it's wonderful it's going to do so so well um and yeah thank you so much again Oh, it's such a pleasure. I, I'll show you my tattoo now. Oh! There we are. Bye, You've got the Steve's symbol. That's because you stole that book. <laughs> <laughs> and so thank you again and have a wonderful evening. And you. Thank you, Danny.